Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and this is part three, our final episode with Dr. William Walsh on the common biochemical imbalances I see in chronic stress and trauma. In this episode, you will learn the most important lab test for every expecting mother to prevent attachment trauma. We will be covering a lot of other topics related to trauma. This is such an important episode you are tuning into. I hope you have a pen and paper nearby because once again, there will be a lot of science in this episode and a lot of takeaways. If you remember from part two, there were three common biochemical imbalances that we introduced, copper excess, methylation imbalances, and pyroluria. This podcast is going deeper into those, and it has six sections. Section one and two will be on copper excess. Section one is on how copper excess is a root cause for postpartum depression. Section two on how copper excess is a root cause of violence in children. In the next two sections, we will discuss methylation. So section three is on how the population of the world is becoming more undermethylated. And section four is the worst thing you can do for an undermethylator. Section five is on pyroluria. And then we will close on the importance of addressing the biochemical imbalances in section six. So let's start off with section one on how copper excess is a root cause for postpartum depression. What's really insidious for postpartum depression is that During a pregnancy, a a woman's copper level more than doubles. And that's natural because the the baby needs that for angiogenesis, for growth. So I have many patients that love children, wanted children, they're married. The first baby came and they they had some trouble afterwards. And then usually after the second or third baby, then they have full-blown postpartum depression. In some cases, postpartum psychosis. Yes. I've had a lot of those cases. So what happened to them is they, it's the first time in their life their copper escalated to a really high level. They were not able to bring it back down. So I did a study with uh, Dr. John Creighton of the University of Chicago about 12 years ago. We published this in a peer-reviewed journal and we happened to have 800 women with serious depression. So we compared those with postpartum depression and those who had children but never had postpartum depression. And it's copper. Like you said, about 95% postpartum depression patients have elevated copper, and some of them had the condition 20 and 30 years after delivery. In other words, it may not ever go down for these people. And um, when you read stories about about mothers, young mothers who maybe might actually harm or even kill their babies, these are people who have postpartum psychosis. I've had quite a few patients with that. But the, the good news is it can be quickly corrected if you bring the copper out of the body. The average human being has 112 milligrams of copper in their body. These people have over 200, but you cannot do it quickly. So right. if you got a high copper person, and if you were a, you were a high copper person, so you may yep. experience this, you yep. don't want to give the full dose of the treatment nope. to bring the copper out, because if you do, it'll roar out quickly. You'll have the highest copper levels in your brain and in your blood ever. And you, might and you will day. feel that. <laughs> you might have the worst day of your life. Yes, so we learned that early, and so our treatment is we get we just do it gradually and gently. We give maybe one third or one fourth the original dose. Mm-hmm. I've had some people that needed to get down to um, 
a tenth of the dose every other day. Wow. And just build up gradually to tolerance. Yep. But it really And that's why it takes, it can take so long to correct just because of how slow you may have to go. However, it is probably the number one highest efficacy we get in any group of patients. It's, it's well over 90% based on our outcome studies. And they, they not only get better, but they stay better. Mm, they not only get better, but they stay better. Ah, I love that. I love that we have tools that help people get better and stay better. You know, my journey into understanding and addressing trauma started with attachment trauma. And attachment trauma comes into the conversation when we talk about postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. As I begin looking for solutions for my adopted son and learning how to be the answer for him, it became obvious for me how a mother who's challenged with postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, how she is fighting her own biology to be as much as she can be for her newborn. There are already so many challenges that she's going to face. It doesn't seem fair that she's also having to fight her own biology, feeling the guilt, and having to go through that experience when we have tools now to be able to prevent it and address it. And given how prevalent this is, I'm sure you've heard of moms who have had postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. And so knowing how prevalent it is and knowing that there are tools that we can address the underlying issue, this test... The copper excess is on my list of prerequisite labs that every expecting or want to be expecting mother should have. As it was mentioned in this section, it does take time to correct that copper excess, usually several months. We use zinc and vitamin B6, and there are specific dosages that we need to use based on the degree of copper excess, and we need to measure how the copper excess is correcting because we can go too much too fast and cause problems. And so it does need to be done before, before ideally before she gets pregnant. But even if she's already pregnant, I would still want to get the labs to know, is she at risk to be able to watch that and have the tools in place for if that does seem to be happening immediately postpartum. Now, because of the relationship between copper and estrogen, which is what causes the postpartum depression or anxiety, this may also be a reason for the anger and irritability associated with just monthly menstrual periods. So for those of you who have premenstrual symptoms and some anger and irritability that comes out, this may be a worthwhile test for you as well. I was shocked to find that I had such a high excess of copper would never have guessed that. And yet being able to understand that that's what I was dealing with and have the tools to address it truly is what was part of my necessary steps for my healing journey. So I encourage you to look at the traits and symptoms of a copper excess and see if you think that you might have it and if it would be a good idea to have yourself tested as well. Now we're going to go into section two, which is still on copper excess, and we're going to look at its effects on violence rage, and anger. The other group that we have great, great success with, believe it or not, are violent children. Yep. Give us the anger, the impulsivity, the rages. Future criminal, Mm -hmm. six or eight years old. We've done 10,000 violent children and adults. And we have our greatest success rate. We've published the efficacy of that twice. 
Nobody seems to notice it. I mean, the psychiatry thinks, well, don't you really need a powerful drug to get the job done? And they and they want to they want to do the psychiatric evaluations and find out whether they're, they have bad parenting or a lack of love or traumatic experiences. Well, I've had ten thousand patients with right. this problem and just fix their chemistry, and usually within two two months they're better. Exactly. We just a study in Australia in a journal uh, two years ago where we took thirty two very violent young males and mm-hmm. um, we tested them using psychiatric instruments. That where you yep. can, where you can determine a person's tendency for bad behavior. We we got p values of um, better than 0.001. I mean, mm-hmm. it works. And yep. one of my frustrations is trying to convince the field of psychiatry of this. And I've been trying to get money for a double-blind controlled study. Yep. We're ready to do it, but they're expensive. And right now, it's usually uh, we have difficulty getting the funding because uh, the the institutions, whether it's government or, or foundations. They'll, they'll ask maybe three people, three experts to uh, evaluate the proposal. And usually there's one little black ball saying, well, it can't be their biochemistry. And that has nothing to do with behavior. Everybody knows it's trauma or bad parenting. Right. Too much, too much violent TV or drugs. Right. No, if you get them young enough. Exactly. Well, that and, and yes, there, there may have been these other things in their life, but yeah. I mean, I have found that you can't really even help them shift in any type of therapy work, any type of, you know, sobriety recovery work without addressing the copper because they're going to be reacting to that to that copper. So that really needs to be part of the treatment plan. And then you can even have the bandwidth. The body can even be able to do the other work and respond to the other treatments. Yeah. And uh, when we're lucky, we may have a patient who is a great difficulty and they only have one imbalance. Right. It might be a pyrrole disorder. In some cases, it might even be overload of letter mercury. So, so the indiv- it's an individualization sort of thing. And the, so the challenge <laughs> for us and for you is uh, when you get, see a patient with a problem is to identify what's wrong. My focus really is if it's a mental illness, my focus is on identifying which neurotransmitters are misbehaving. Yep. Now we have therapies for normalizing or adjusting neurotransmission. Right. And I I think that's why we've been doing better and better as time goes on. Mm -hmm. It's going to get just better and better. We have new therapies that most people have never even thought of that are really close. Right. Like messenger, messenger RNA therapies where we, like, for example, we, we do methylation therapies that can, that can uh, fix reuptake and help people with depression or oxidative yep. stress. But the methylation therapies tend to affect maybe a dozen or 20 other genes. So you right. might have some side effects. With, with messenger RNA, you could, with the DNA code yep. of the proper protein, you can put that into the body, have your mm-hmm. body cells manufacture what, what you need Yep. And it'll just pinpoint it and get rid of side effects. I mean, that's going to be big in about 10 years. Right. This is the future (laughs) is being able to identify your neurotransmitters and not just throw a medication at it, but actually through nutrients, be able to change the epigenetic expression of, of their activity. The future of medicine is so exciting to see the potential for targeted therapies. Speaking of targeted therapies. Let's talk about targeted therapy for copper excess. For anyone experiencing emotional reactivity, anger, rage, or any of the other symptoms of copper excess, the test that you would need to get would be copper, zinc, and ceruloplasm at the minimum. In the link that I have in the description, 
It takes you to a PDF of the biochemical imbalances and it specifies the test that you should get. And it even has the link for where you can order your own test because it needs to be a specific type of copper and zinc and ceruloplasm. But those three are what we need to calculate a copper excess. So we calculate it based on the copper to zinc ratio and how much free copper is in your blood. So copper is usually bound to a protein that's called ceruloplasm. And we need to know how much of that is bound to that protein or how much of it is free because a copper excess is either a high copper to zinc ratio or an excess of free copper in the blood that's not bound to the protein. Now, I have worked with a lot of adopted children with behavioral issues with lots of anger and rage. And in my years of experience with adoption, addiction, trauma, it is never just one thing. So I don't want any of us to still be looking for that magic bullet. If you have a copper excess, it will have brought on pain and trauma to yourself and others around you, but it will not be enough to just fix the copper excess, nor can we expect sustainable behavior change until we address the underlying biology that is fueling it. And in the case of an adopted child, just as an example, the source of rage is multifaceted. It is also their neurodevelopment that was affected. Their attachment and bonding was clearly affected. They may have had other exposures and toxins. It is unusual to only need to address one thing and get magical behavioral change in someone whose body has experienced a number of different life experiences and whose biology, like we don't still completely understand 100%. Being able to bring in this copper excess for helping children, adults with emotional reactivity, moms with postpartum depression has been an incredible tool that we should always consider in these circumstances with people with any of these traits. Another problem is something you mentioned early, and that is that the population of the world is becoming more undermethylated. Yes. And I believe it's because the, the developed world is giving huge amounts of flow folates, both in foods. Yep and in prenatal vitamins, and it's causing the babies to become undermethylated. And this has now yep. gone through several generations. So it's increasing and increasing. So in terms of schizophrenia, for example, uh, about 50 years ago, they discovered that most people with paranoid schizophrenia, the ones who hear voices and have, have that classic combination of terrible problems, they, they found out that most of them had too much dopamine activity. And they, they discovered this by accident. They found that children or people taking PCP, that some of them can develop schizophrenia mm-hmm. and then it'll go away with the PCP wears away. And they, they, it took a while before they realized what it was, that it was actually the dopamine, that these yep. are people who had high dopamine and made it higher. They developed the schizophrenia from it. However, now we have the type of methylation and schizophrenia now is changing dramatically. It used to be at least 50% were overmethylated her yep. voices and all of that, the sensory disorder. Now it's less than 10%. Mm-hmm. However, mainstream psychiatry continues to give the wrong medications. I mean, mm-hmm. they gave the right medications back 50 years ago as they needed to lower dopamine. But now, yep. they're, now they're giving these atypical antipsychotics. Every, every blessed one of them, among other things, is focused on lowering dopamine activity. That's yep. not their problem. Exactly. It's not the problem. Or, it's a different class. And I can understand why that's hard for medical science to realize that, in fact, that, that the character of schizophrenia and other conditions has changed. That's why right. there's so many 
people with, with addictions because right. addictions are under methylated condition as well as yes. an NMDA condition. Yes. So yeah. what I get frustrated at being in the medical field, and I'm sure that with your work, you get even more frustrated than me at this, is that there is still, I see this tendency to, with good intentions, be testing for methylation, but the way that they are testing for methylation imbalances is just by looking at the MTHFR gene. And that's all that they're looking at. (laughs) They're looking at, do you have a SNP in that MTHFR gene? And if there's a SNP, then they tell you that, oh yes, you have a methylation imbalance and their solution is to give you folate. Or if they're really fancy, they'll wanna give you methylfolate because you have a methylation imbalance. And this is not what is helpful for undermethylators. In fact, that's going to make the, especially the serotonin, that you know, the epigenetic changes on your DNA and how it expresses those transporters, it's going to make it worse. So I know that there's lots of people here on this call who that has been kind of what they've seen done is just looking at MTHFR gene, maybe through 23andMe or some other genetic test. So tell us the dangers of that and how that is so bad for undermethylators, especially given that there's such a higher prevalence now of undermethylators. We need to know this. One thing we've learned quite recently, and I don't think I even presented this when, when you were at our session, we've learned that undermethylations associated with low serotonin activity, excessive glutamate activity, we've learned, and we have these symptoms and traits, people who are undermethylated tend to be... Uh, be very gentle here, Dr. Walsh. Remember that I am a strong undermethylator. So am, be kind to me as you describe me. <laughs> no, there are many wonderful aspects of being undermethylated and a few nasty yeah. ones. <laughs> but uh, the point is that <laughs> we've now treated 15,000 or more people with undermethylation. Right. Guess what? These traits of competitiveness, uh, tendency for seasonal allergies, on and on, these classic traits... Most of them don't change. Right. I've had great athletes who were very competitive. I've, I've worked with, with professional athletes, and they were all worried about changing, normalizing their methylation. When I explained to them, it had a lot to do with competitiveness. They were afraid they would no longer be elite athletes. Right. And, um, no, didn't so, do no. that at all. So what does that tell you? It tells you that it's not the one carbon cycle. It's not the methylation cycle. It's not the MTHFR. What it really is, is the methylation, the degree to which you're DNA has been methylated. Yep. That's what determines it. Every Mm -hmm. epigenetics really involves a gene uh, that has methylated, has a methyl molecule near it on your DNA strand. And these are called methyl bookmarks. And that's how gene expression is adjusted for different Mm -hmm. tissues in different parts of the body. Let me highlight what was just mentioned at the end of this section because it is so important and I would not want you to miss it or misunderstand it. It's not the methylation cycle. It's not the MTHFR gene. What it really is, is the methylation, the degree to which your DNA has been methylated. Can we know our methylation status then from a genetic test? Can we look at MTHFR gene? And if there are SNPs, know that we have a methylation imbalance on the DNA level. No, we have to look at the net effect of methylation on the DNA. There are many genes that cross cover each other, meaning we cannot look at one gene in a big methylation cycle and know for sure the net effect that it has on our neurotransmitters. Now what I use is I will use whole blood histamine as a marker for net methylation status, but I am not looking at that in isolation. 
First, I am looking at the pattern of traits and symptoms, things that Dr. Walsh mentioned a few of them. And then I'm confirming what I suspect through lab testing. There are methylation profile tests that look at the whole methylation cycle, and that would be the most accurate way to assess through lab testing for one's methylation status. So it is not MTHFR. It is not one single gene. It is not a a SNP in one single gene. It is the actual methylation effect on your DNA and the downstream effects of that. And that is why some, but not all, undermethylators have low serotonin activity, low serotonin and low dopamine activity, because it matters what genes on the DNA have a methyl group or don't. Methyl groups are, are going to change the expression of your DNA. And so this is where we have to rely on symptoms. I have a whole assessment form that I have people fill out. I do this usually before they do the test. Now, there are still some people who go and get the whole blood histamine test first, or they go and get a methylation profile test first. And when they come to see me, they already have those. But I am still, still having them fill out the assessment form with the most common symptoms and traits of the different methylation imbalances, undermethylation and overmethylation. Because sometimes you can even have an undermethylation status, but it not be affecting your life. We're not going to do anything about that. So I need to know, do you have the most common symptoms and traits? Is this affecting your health? Is this affecting your life? And then let's confirm that with a lab test. Yes, it's confirmed. You have an undermethylation status or you have an overmethylation status. And now let's personalize the support for your methylation with the strategic tools that we have so that you can be in your best health and be your best self. With that, let's go into section number four, which is talking about the worst thing you can do for an undermethylator. It's variable. They call it differential DNA methylation. And, and so if you're undermethylated, we know you're undermethylated if we, if we do our testing and we can identify a person who has uh, a poor SAMI saw ratio. We, we can do that. However, if your body biochemically is undermethylated, that means your DNA is undermethylated. So what happens with, with undermethylation, for example, if you're undermethylated and you happen to have depression, which is the major form of depression, low serotonin activity depression, if you gave their undermethylated, but folate and methyl, but SAMI and folate have an opposite effect on your DNA. Methyl tends to shut down gene expression. Folate increases gene expression. Now, both folate and SAMI and methionine are methylators, really powerful methylators. The problem is some of these methylators, if you've got a disturbed methylation cycle, some of these nutrients that we use, some of them, folates, for example, will tend to lower serotonin activity, which is the worst thing you can do for someone with that, or even someone- For an undermethylator, that is the worst thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Most people with OCD, and the majority of people who are prone to addictions are undermethylated, and they will get worse if you give them folates. Their methylation will improve in the body, and the patient will get worse because yep. of, the, of the effect on DNA and gene expression. Okay, so say that one more time, because that is so key. <laughs> okay. You give them folate, you give them methylfolate. If you give methylfolate. The methylation status may improve, but they will get worse. And that's what happens to many of them. 
Hey, did everybody get that? Foley acts as, and if you're really, if for the scientists out there, Foley's act as deacetylase inhibitors. They have they inhibit sirtuins. We we know exactly what happens, and and it affects genes differently. So the net effect of giving methylfolate, folinic acid, or folic acid, any of them, to a person with low serotonin activity, is you're going to drive their serotonin activity further down. The benefits you get from improving methylation are far overwhelmed by the the dramatic decline in their serotonin neurotransmission. Yep, we learned that the hard way. We learned that the hard way. Thousands and thousands of patients. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful to know that. I'm a little bit, I'm very bothered by some of my, my colleagues who, who don't seem to appreciate this. And as soon as they find a person has a, a homozygous a 677T SNP on their MTHFR, they think, aha, this person needs methylfolate. The answer is methylfolate. It could kill them if you've yes. got somebody who is suicidal. Exactly. Yeah. On the other hand, if you've got if you've got a uh, autistic child who might be undermethylated and not have a serotonin problem, it might help them and probably yeah. would. Or if you've got there are people who are overmethylated. That's what's really interesting. Overmethylated people thrive on folate. Yes, yes, it's like this miracle. It it just it it takes over and and they like their symptoms dramatically decrease. I've been very happy with it. Now I don't get many overmethylators anymore, <laughs> right? I get far many. I get far more undermethylators, but for those overmethylators, it's been wonderful. Yeah, and so we're getting in schizophrenia. We're getting a lot of people who have delusional disorders. They're yep. everywhere. They they have this breakdown and they have this terrible condition called schizophrenia. And it's it's really a, a completely different form of schizophrenia. It's the undermethylated version. Yep. Scientists like to call it hypomethylation, hypo and hyper rather yep. than over and under. It is so interesting to see the change on a societal level of a condition like schizophrenia and the change over time from a majority of overmethylators to a majority of undermethylators and how medicine does need to catch up with that. Because now we come back to the conversation around folate. And this is going to be a conversation not just for people with schizophrenia, but any undermethylators. Who knew that there was so much to discuss about one of these B vitamins, folate? Now, here's the danger of misunderstanding methylation. If we misunderstand it, then we're going to be giving the wrong treatment. We run the danger of misunderstanding methylation imbalance when we just look at one's genes, like the MTHFR gene. For most the standard of care for a SNP in the MTHFR gene is to give methylfolate. And yet the net effect of folate in any form, methylfolate or folate on our DNA is to actually decrease activity levels of serotonin. But wait, what happens if you are an undermethylator who already has low serotonin depression or low serotonin obsessive compulsive traits or low serotonin addiction? You just got worse. And for some, it could be dangerously worse. Some have committed suicide. And this is likely due to the worsening of their mental health that was caused with methylfolate, intended to be helpful for their methylation balance, and yet it actually drove their serotonin levels lower. So again, it does not matter whether it is folate or methylfolate. The net effect of folate is to decrease serotonin. This is a good thing. If you have high serotonin, for example, if you are an undermethylator, 
you want that folate. You want methylfolate, but not if you are an undermethylator with low serotonin depression. That is when you definitely would not want to use methylfolate or any form of folate. We are going to leave the discussion of methylation now and go to our last biochemical imbalance to talk about, which is pyroluria or pyrrole disorder. This is an important one and it's important because it can happen so early in life and be associated with some pretty important and common conditions. Okay, the good news is that pyrrole disorder is not epigenetic. The way we know that is it's, it's correctable. A pyrrole disorder can cause great harm to a person, and it usually affects them from the time they're very young. But it's correctable. A full-blown epigenetic conditions are not readily correctable. Uh, but what it amounts to is it's a, it can be either genetic and we've recently learned that it's a, it's a, it really is a measure, a marker for oxidative stress. And in the biochemistry of what goes on in your bone marrow and to, to a different, to some degree in your spleen, the biochemical reactions that involve uh, maybe synthesis of hemoglobin and, and some of those blood chemicals, if there's excessive, if a person has too much oxidative stress, it can, it can produce pyroles. Now, pyroles are byproducts of, of these reactions, like might be a plus B gives hemoglobin plus pyroles plus maybe something else. Well, the pyroles have no, uh, it's, it's a byproduct of, re, of important reactions. Pyroles have no function in the body and the body just clears them out. It goes out in the bloodstream and then out in the urine. Yep. Problem is they have affinity for zinc and, and B6. B6. Yep. You have an affinity for anything that's an aldehyde. B6 is in the form of P5P is the major aldehyde in the bloodstream. And it strips these things out. And so it's a double deficiency, or at least a double depletion of zinc and B6. And uh, runs in families. I had a family yep. in Aurora uh, where they had a history of extreme violence for many generations. This woman had 17 children. They all had pyrrole disorder. Oh, my and, goodness. It was a wild household. And they did really well, although a couple of them had become unfortunately, schizophrenic before, mm. before it got corrected. A pyrrole disorder itself can cause schizophrenia, mm -hmm. not just the methylation imbalance. So, yep. but the pyrrole disorder is it's my favorite imbalance. And the reason is it's present in about 10% of the population. In people with mental illness, it's more like 20 or 30%. Autism mm -hmm. is it's between 35 and 40% of autistics are, have pyrrole disorder. And almost anyone who has pyrrole disorder gets better if you treat it. It's something that can usually be completely corrected. All you have to do is normalize B6 and zinc. And it's and one of the ones that responds the fastest. Pyroluria is one of the fastest to respond to treatment, which is why when I see that a person has this, I get excited because I know that their better tomorrow is right around the corner. Very similar to the other biochemical imbalances, once you understand the cluster of traits, they are easy to identify. People with pyroluria are sensitive people. They are sensitive to light, to sounds, to food, to people. And there are two things about pyroluria I would want you to know. One, it gets worse during times of stress. And so in times of stress, people will become more sensitive, more sensitive to light, more sensitive to sounds, more sensitive to people. They will want to isolate even more. They'll want to wear their sunglasses even indoors, for example. So that is one of the traits that we can see is, does it get worse during times of stress? The second thing to know is that it can often start early in life during neurodevelopment. 
And in fact, many of the traits of pyroluria, the sensitivities of pyroluria are the same traits that a person would have if they have gaps in the midbrain level of neurodevelopment that causes sensory processing disorders and sensory overwhelm. This would have happened in the first nine to 18 months of life. This is also the time when life experiences trigger what will eventually become an autoimmune condition. And there is an association between pyroluria and autoimmunity so that everyone with an autoimmune condition or anyone that I identify who's on that pathway towards autoimmunity, I am definitely testing for pyroluria. Now let's go into our last section for this podcast episode, section six on what is possible when we identify and treat these biochemical imbalances. I did. I've worked with more than 10,000 violent people. I've also worked with ex-convicts and criminals. I spent 18 years actually as a prison volunteer trying to help people in prison. The first people I got to know well and spent a lot of time with were actually death row inmates. And um, I've learned to listen and be calm. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, and that's, and that's part, they, partly, I think, why you've been able to accomplish so much in this work is because you worked with the hardest of the hardest people, right? Like, and if you can improve their brains yeah. and their neurotransmitters, then for the rest of us, you can definitely optimize us. Started with violent children and violent adults and tried to understand why they were violent. I right. discovered that it really was biochemical. Most of it's yep. inborn. It can be aggravated by a bad environment. I've tested people in the inner city of Chicago and people in the wealthy suburbs. If you get to a child with an inborn tendency for violence, if they're in the wealthy suburbs and they have uh, caring parents and a, a good environment, they, can uh, do okay. they might be okay, at least mild cases of it. Take yep. that same child in the inner city where there's violence and there's a bad environment, yep. poor diet, stress, uh, they're likely to wind up in prison. It's the same exactly. condition. So it can be aggravated by life experience. I think one of my greatest disappointments is I've gone to, told, told us to the United, the United States Senate, to the, to the Surgeon General. I've published the, this. I've gone to California Corrections, Illinois Corrections. Nobody will believe it. They think right. it has to do with bad parenting or something yep. like that or trauma. Mm -hmm. And no, we, I, I really believe we could really make a dent in crime and violence, maybe yep. really bring it down 80, 90%. If we simply would take young children, identify their tendencies, their genetic biochemical tendencies for violence, which will usually involve zinc deficiency, pyrrole disorder, possibly elevated copper and things of that nature. And they just get better. But you have to do it before, they're, before they get into drugs and alcohol. I tried at the beginning to turn some of my ex-convicts and get them into the system. And I found that it, we had very poor success with them. They would get better. And we'd find out later that they had that they had stopped taking the treatment. And uh, what happens is that once they're past the age of 12 or 13 or 14, once they start committing crimes, it's very hard to help them. They also get involved heavily with drugs and they have substance abuse problems. Yeah. Anyway, that's and that's the problem, yeah. right? Because then then there's this whole other host of changes that happen to their nervous system that are very hard to undo after that. I made a study of sociopaths. I've, I've worked with hundreds of them. We've interviewed and tested Charles Manson and some of the, of the world's most famous criminals. And what science is finding, well, first of all, their chemistry is striking. And the sociopaths have a single combination of imbalances that is really unique. And what we find is that they find that they have smaller amygdalas. The amygdala in your brain is a part of the brain where you have empathy. And they, they, when they see a person's face, they, a, a sociopath does not recognize a frown. Or, or right. pain. 
it's part of the condition. It's really interesting, but it's, it's so much that is bio, inborn, biochemical and correctable. We've had hundreds of sociopathic wild children. I mean, really wild, violent children who might be violent 10 times a day yep. and they do well. And I still hear from some of them 30 years later mm-hmm. and they're still doing fine. Yep. Whereas they were probably headed for the penitentiary. So that's mm-hmm. my biggest, I, I guess that's my biggest frustration. I've never been able to convince people. And since I found I I could not convince the government or scientists or the mainstream, I decided the only way to do this is by training lots and lots of doctors and have them do this and develop maybe tens of thousands of cases of kids getting better. If, If I had a bumper sticker, my bumper sticker would say, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. Yep. So I had to do it from that end because I, I did everything I could to convince with data, with science, nobody wanted to listen. Yep. However, the treatments do work. When the people lead, the leaders will follow. Hmm, what an interesting message. When I look at the future, I see so much hope because of the tools we have to identify one's biology that we can strategically support for them to break the cycle of stress and trauma in their body. I love teaching strategic tools. I love being able to personalize protocols and plans. This is so much better. We get so much better results than things that are done blindly or just a general protocol or a general standard of care. The strategic tools is where the magic happens. And this is why I love teaching strategic tools to those members in my biology of trauma professional training program, because they get renewed love for their work. They start to see results. They get hope for their clients. And it's a beautiful thing. There is so much that we can do to accelerate one's healing journey from trauma when we can identify what the biology needs and strategically provide them with that support. I know this episode was a lot. And as a reminder, the quick reference for the biochemical imbalances is in the description. Look through the common traits of each one and see if maybe you should get tested. The link to order your own labs is inside the guide as well. And this concludes this podcast episode, part three with Dr. Walsh, answering the question, the most important lab test for every expecting mother to prevent attachment trauma. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey. And you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love.